Well, a rich time of worship. In recent years, our nation has become increasingly interested in our judicial system. Sadly, the interest doesn't center around court cases involving great matters of principle and morality. The interest in our nation revolves around the trials of celebrities. Maybe you remember the trial of O.J. Simpson. How many of you remember the trial of O.J. Simpson? You date yourself. I remember listening to the trial on the radio as I worked as a computer programmer. It was in the background, (coughs) the background where we worked, and we had updates throughout the day, and sometimes we heard the testimony. By the time the verdict was announced, I was working as a computer programmer for a, a hospital. And I was standing in a room with about 20 people as we watched the verdict being read on television. And when O.J. Simpson was declared innocent, there was shock in the room. Some people said, I can't believe it. And others were on the other side. They said, well, I knew it. And uh, the head cook at the hospital made arrangements that there would be free orange juice for the rest of the week. Get free OJ, free OJ. I thought it was that was great. We enjoyed our orange juice that week, but it's really not a, a laughing matter. In, in recent days, our, our nation has been caught up with the Scott Peterson trial, the Michael Jackson trial. <clears throat> we now have cable channels devoted entirely to showing court in session apart from the Judge Judys and the other judges that I don't even know about. Well, this morning we have an opportunity really to hear about and to learn about the most famous, the most interesting, the most important trial of all time. I'm talking about the trial of Jesus Christ. This trial is filled with drama. We have an innocent man who is accused by a group of envious men. And the accused stands before the highest court in the land. This isn't like petty court. This is the highest court in the land. And the outcome seems to hang in the balance. It seems to go back and forth. How is Pilate going to decide? And before it's over, the entire nation is involved helping to decide the verdict and punishment of this evildoer, Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We'll find Jesus in this passage standing before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Jesus had already been tried before the Sanhedrin and found guilty of blasphemy. We call that the religious trial. But now, this morning, we turn our attention to the Roman trial. I want to set the context for you by reading... All of these verses. We're going to go through 16 verses this morning in Matthew 27. As we go through these verses, it's going to be my my goal really to show you who Jesus Christ is. We're just going to see four characteristics of Christ as we go through this trial. So maybe you can look and see what this teaches you about Jesus as we read. Matthew 27, verse 11 reads this, Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, Are you the king of the Jews. And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. 
And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he made no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard even to a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When, therefore, they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. We're going to look at four characteristics of Christ as we go through here. Each of them will have a corresponding application for us. First characteristic of Christ is that he is the sovereign one. Verse 11, he is the sovereign one. We find Jesus standing before Pilate, asking him, Are you king of the Jews? Now, from this account, this question of Pilate almost seems to come out of nowhere. But I do remind you, these gospel narratives aren't complete accounts of what was happened, what actually happened. These writers are selective in their material, and Matthew gets right down to his main point here about Jesus being king of the Jews. Or as I said, Jesus is the sovereign one. To help us a little bit, I want to give you a little bit of a context. Luke fills us in on the details of what happened shortly before this. The Jews had come to Pilate and had told Pilate of the wrong that Jesus done. Now, we found out in the religious trial that blasphemy was the particular charge against Jesus. But such a charge wouldn't fly when coming against Pilate, the secular governor in the Roman court. I mean, if he had said, here's Jesus, he is guilty of blasphemy, Pilate would have said, what's that to me? That's a religious matter. You go and take care of that yourself. In fact, even you remember when Paul, when he was standing religious trial, he said, this is a religious matter. You all are experts in the law. You determine that. So they had to come up with something different. And, and they said this, Luke 23, verse 2, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Christ, a king. Now, I know 
I believe that Pilate knew full well what was going on here. These religious leaders were presenting Jesus to Pilate as one who was against Rome. Now, an accusation should have been strange for Pilate. And in trying to think about what we might um, compare that with, it would be a little bit like this. Think about a group of terrorists coming to President Bush and saying, Mr. Bush... Here's a native countryman, and he has made it his goal and his desire and his focus to destroy the United States of America. Now, how, how would President Bush hear that? He'd think, but you guys want to destroy the United States of America. Why would you turn in this man who's trying to destroy the United States of America? You two should be friends. And so, likewise, when these... Pharisees and Sadducees came up and said, Hey, Pilate, Pilate, here's a guy who's against your government. He's told us not to pay taxes. He said he's our Messiah, the one who's going to deliver us from your sovereign rule, Pilate. He said he's a king and he's going to overthrow you. So you better deal with it before he comes against you. Pilate would have said, This guy's your friend because that's what you're trying to do all the time. I trust you see the irony of these words. And should these words prove true, certainly, to be sure, Jesus would be no friend of Rome. But, in being no friend of Rome, he would be a friend of the Pharisees and Sadducees, not an enemy. So, I think Pilate knew that something deeper was going on, and of all the accusations that were brought against him, he focused here on this one about being king of the Jews. He simply asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, it is as you say, yes. Pilate, I am the king of the Jews. I want you to notice here about the the charge of Jesus being king, that this was the official charge of why Jesus was put to death. In fact, if you look over in verse 37, you'll see that there was a sign placed upon above Jesus' head. It says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. The Romans used to place placards above criminals being executed. So that those who would walk by and see them being executed would know why it is that they were being put to death. Jesus was being put to death for being king of the Jews. And you know what? Pilate got it exactly right. He's the one that ordered what would be on the sign. Jesus is indeed the king. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who rules and reigns over all. When Jesus walked on this planet... His teaching was saturated talking about the kingdom of heaven. I mean, think about it. The very first words out of his mouth when he preached was what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus went about, summary verse, Matthew 4.23, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is all about who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom. It's all about how you ought to seek first the kingdom of heaven. Nearly an entire chapter of Matthew chapter 13 is devoted to what the kingdom is like. Who's in and who's out. Jesus spoke about how the Son of Man will come in His kingdom. He spoke about who would be the greatest in His kingdom. He talked to a rich man about how to enter into the kingdom. He spoke constantly of who would be in, who would be out. He set Himself up as the judge, the determiner of who would be in the kingdom and who would be out of the kingdom. The Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, speaks about His return when He would establish His kingdom. 
When celebrating the Passover one last time, he brought the kingdom into focus. He said this in Matthew 26:29, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I, when I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. Why did Jesus speak so much about the kingdom? Because he's the king. He's the sovereign one who rules and reigns over all. He's the king of heaven. Jesus is the sovereign one. And I do not believe that it was any accident that in the Roman trial of Jesus Christ that he was crucified for being king. Because that's who he is. Right? You remember the, the religious trial? He was, he was convicted of blasphemy, claiming to be the Messiah. And the religious leaders got it all right that he was the Messiah, but they got it all wrong in crucifying him. And so Pilate here, he gets it all right that that Jesus is the king, but he gets it all wrong in crucifying him. John's Gospel tells us of a conversation that Jesus had with Pilate. Jesus made it very clear to Pilate that his kingdom wasn't in this world and that his kingdom was actually a greater authority than Pilate's kingdom. He says, you have no authority unless it was given to you from above. At that point, Pilate should have said, Jesus, you are a king of a bigger kingdom, and I bow the knee to you. Instead, he delivered him over to be crucified, as verse 26 says, and Pilate got it all wrong. Now, what's so good about this passage is that Jesus, at this point, hardly looks like a king. When we think of king, we think about royal crowns and dressed in majesty and authority coming out of his mouth and servants screwing around the throne. Whatever the king says, the servants do. We think of power and might. But picture Jesus here when He says He's the King of the Jews. He's beaten down. He's humiliated. He's seemingly not in control. But let me just say that looks can be deceiving. And that indeed Jesus is the Sovereign One. We'll see in Matthew 28 when we get there, Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus in glory and honor and power is where we shall see Jesus. We'll see Him seated upon the throne where He is right now. But think about how good a picture this is right here. Though Jesus is seated upon the throne at the right hand of God the Father, we don't see Him. We only see Him by faith right now. Second of all, if He is really King, how well is He doing reigning on the earth? Say, not too well. Many, many people are in rebellion against Him. In fact, Ivana even commenting on, on the way to church this morning of how few people we even see driving to church on Sunday. And, and I'm not saying that from an arrogant thing that says, oh, we drive to church, we're righteous people, but just kind of a, a sadness that our nation is secular and is not pursuing God. And here Jesus is king. His commands aren't being carried out very well. There's little respect for him now. In fact, I think the majority of times the name Jesus is used, it's not used in praise. It is used in being cursed instead. Well, that's what it looked like on the day when Jesus stood before Pilate. And so obvious was this that the charges against him being king should have been dismissed. You're saying that he's a king? Look at how low he is. He's not a king. I mean, Pilate should have taken this to the people and said, Here's, the, here's your king. 
It's just that, ah, oh, he's not a king. He's a crazy man. But he is the sovereign one. And I guarantee you that though Jesus, we can't see him now, though we don't see him exerting his full control, there will be a day when he begins to assert his reign. And all of his subjects will be glad on that day. And those who rebel against him will find themselves in great trouble. The lesson for us is clear. If he's the sovereign one, we need to submit to him, right? To a king, the proper response is a bended knee. And so likewise here, he's the sovereign one, we ought to submit to him. And this is the way, the only way to obtain salvation, right? By submitting your life to Christ. is by, by turning from your ways to turn to His ways. Right? You do that by bowing your knee and loving and worshiping Jesus Christ, the King and Sovereign One over all. He is sovereign, worthy of our affection and our praise. Submit to Him. Well, not only is Jesus the Sovereign One, submit to Him. Jesus is also the Silent One. This comes in verses 12 through 14. And it's really amazing. It's amazing. Matthew records for us verse 12 that while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he made no answer. Now, I can picture the chief priests and these elders in my mind, the presence of Pilate saying one bad thing after another, after another, after another, making Jesus really bad. Jesus, you said that you could tear down this temple. When are you going to tear down this wonderful building that Herod, may he live forever, built for us? Huh? Will you desecrate public property, Jesus? Jesus, you told us you're king. Pilate's our governor. Caesar is king. We have no other other than Pilate. We have no king other than Caesar. How can you claim to be king? You are being tried in a Roman court, Jesus. What do you have to say for yourself now? You aren't even a lawful citizen. You told us never to pay taxes to Caesar. Why don't you come out and tell this to Pilate? Are you scared of being a tax evader? Jesus, you're a lawbreaker. We have specific rules, traditions handed down from our fathers. You eat bread without washing your hands. You don't fast like our fathers. You've broken the Sabbath. You're disrupting the peace. You associate with sinners. You pick grain on the Sabbath. You heal people. You work on the Sabbath. You're no Jew. You've betrayed our nation, Jesus. Jesus, we saw the wicked things you did. You cast demons out of people. It's only because you are filled with Satan himself, the prince of the demons. Jesus, listen, we're the rulers of the Jewish people. We elders and chief priests, Pharisees and Sadducees. Yet on countless occasions, you haven't obeyed us. We've asked for a sign. You've disobeyed. We've told you to stop, pe- to stop people from worshiping you but you've allowed it to continue. We've asked you many, many questions, but you refuse to answer us. We've asked you where your authority comes from, and you refuse to answer us. You're a rebellious citizen of Israel. You're a disgrace to our people. You ought to be ashamed to be called a Jew. And Pilate, just as he's disobeyed us, he is disobeying you. On and on and on and on and on, the accusations came. And you know what? Jesus didn't open his mouth once. It says in verse 12, he made no answer. As Pilate watched this, he said, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? It's verse 13. Don't you hear this? I mean, he's watching the situation and these guys are testifying again and again and again. And, and Jesus is just being quiet. Maybe he had his head bowed. Maybe he's looking straight into the eyes of his accusers. I think the latter option is probably best. He's looking at them with eyes of love. 
And they're just accusing him, railing on him, abusing him. And Pilate asked in amazement, don't you hear what they say? I mean, because it's a natural response to defend yourself. I know that when I'm accused of a wrong, a sin I committed, you know what my tendency is to do? No, you're wrong. You're not right. I'm right. Even though he is seeing clearly the log in my eye. I say, I don't have a log in my eye. It's my response. It takes a great deal of self-control to remain silent when accused. I remember being falsely accused one time. A guy called me up on the telephone, quite angered at what I'd done. We began talking. I didn't even know what I had done or hadn't done. He had to tell me about the situation, about what I did. I'm like, oh, okay. And I didn't even do it. I was wrongly accused. He was angry enough he wanted to come and speak with me about it. And the time between my phone call and the meeting, it, it caused much distress in my soul. I wanted just to lash out to this guy. And I talked to Yvonne. It caused me to lose sleep over it. My flesh wanted to tell him everything against it. By the Lord's grace, He allowed me to be silent and try as much as I could to, to be silent. But I remember even in the <clears throat> time we cleared up the misunderstanding, anger was, was steaming in my face as I said something I shouldn't have said. In this case of Jesus here, He remained silent. He could have refuted every single one of these accusations. He could have demonstrated how every single one of them false. He could have said, you're slandering me in this. This isn't true. He could have turned the tables and made the chief priests and elders look like fools. But to do so, you know what? Meant that he wouldn't go to the cross. That was the case. So Jesus was silent. He didn't even respond to Pilate. Right? Verse 14. He did not answer Pilate with regard to even a single charge. In fact, I think when Matthew writes that, that's how we ought to read this. He did not answer Pilate, or it did not answer him, with regard even to a single charge. Those things that were even just so small, even be ridiculous. Cast out demons by Beelzebub. He responded to that in Matthew 12. You didn't answer our questions. He did in Matthew chapter 22. He could, have, he could have said any of this, but he didn't. <clears throat> didn't even try to set the most obvious things straight. And I know my heart. I like to set everything straight so that people know what it is that's right and what it is that wrong, was wrong. But Jesus just let it go. He said, they think wrong about me, so be it. He didn't try to defend himself. And Pilate was amazed. It says there, even he was quite amazed. Right? A superlative. He was really amazed. So contrary is this to human nature, which, by the way, is exactly the point of his silence. Jesus was truly divine in this matter. James said, if any man does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Right? We can tame many things, but we can't tame the tongue. Jesus here tamed his tongue and kept quiet. At this moment, he was demonstrating his perfection as a man. To be silent when being accused unjustly. And his silence here actually is a fulfillment of yet another scriptural passage of prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before the Messiah come. Said he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus kept his mouth quiet. That ends the first phase of the Roman trial. From other gospel accounts, you can put things together. There were three phases to the Roman trial. First years before Pilate. And then Pilate heard that Herod was in Jerusalem. Right? Herod was up in Galilee and he was in Jerusalem and he said, oh, well, Jesus was in Galilee. Maybe bring him over to Herod. So he took him over to Herod. And uh, the second phase of the trial, Herod was pleased that he came. You can read about it in Luke chapter 23, verses 8 through 11. Herod was excited about meeting Jesus. He had heard about him reigning over Galilee, but had never met him. And so he questioned him at some length. Half an hour, an hour, just asking him, asking him, asking him. <clears throat> the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently, is what Luke says. And Jesus didn't say a word. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody who's quiet? Conversation can't last too long. Chief priests railing on Jesus. Herod talking to Jesus, seeking. And what happens? Nothing. And the second phase of the Roman trial ended with Jesus not even saying a word. Went off to Herod and comes back. And through it all, Jesus was silent. He was indeed the meek and humble lamb who was prepared to be a sacrifice for our sins. Now, should Jesus have spoken words in His defense, it would have stopped His accusers in their tracks. You remember when the religious leaders came up to Jesus to stump Him with His most difficult questions? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Well, what about the resurrection? Jesus said, this man was married to seven. Why? No, this wife was married to seven husbands. And in the resurrection, who are they going to be? He says, you don't understand the Scriptures, the power of God. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Trying to trap him. And Jesus answered all of these questions. He answered them so well that we read that no one dared from that day on to ask him another question. And I believe that should Jesus have chosen to defend himself, no one would dare from that day on to accuse him anymore. And he would never have died for our sins. That's how important it was for him to be silent. And again, like our first point, this is a great picture of Christ right now. He is the silent one right now. His voice doesn't boom out. We don't see Jesus in His thundering wrath to the world speaking forth of its rebellion against Him. Jesus is pretty quiet. As He sits before the Father, He's not saying a lot for us to hear. He's already told us what it is we need to hear. It's written in the Bible. It's pages in a book waiting to be read. That's the posture of Jesus today. Certainly there are His ambassadors, His preachers, His people speaking of Him, but He Himself is silent. In the meanwhile, our lesson is clear. Here's the silent one. Our lesson is to wait for Him. We await for Him. That's His posture right now. As Jesus was patient and meek and humble, so we ought to wait for Him in patience and humility and meekness. How often is this the testimony of God's people? Psalm 130 that was read in our service. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In His Word do I hope. The psalmist there is looking for vindication, looking for help, looking for something. And and things aren't going so well. And God, you're quiet. And He says, I'm waiting patiently for you. 
Psalm 25, verse 5. Again, David finds himself in an immense difficulty and he says, You are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. You're quiet right now, God. The enemies have risen up against me. But I wait for you. That's what we need to do. Psalm 37, verse 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Jesus is the sovereign one. Submit to Him. Jesus is the silent one. Wait for Him. Thirdly, Jesus is the rejected one. This couldn't be any clearer. Look at verse 15 where the story starts. We're going to run through these next several verses. Begins the third phase of the Roman trial. It was with Pilate, then it went off to Herod. Now it comes back to Pilate again to finish this trial. Pilate knew several things. He knew that he was innocent. His wife, in verse 19, calls him an innocent, calls him a righteous man. In verse 23, Pilate even said to the crowds, What evil has he done? It was clear to all that he was innocent. Pilate also knew, secondly, that the religious trial, religious leaders trying to pull a fast one. I mean, certainly their question that they came up, their accusations were so false. But even in verse 18, we read that Jesus was delivered over because of envy. And so Pilate knew that he's innocent and the religious leaders, right, hated Jesus while they turned him in. And so Pilate initiated his plan to free Jesus during the Passover. It was called National Amnesty Day. It was the day in which the Rome would extend an act of kindness and goodwill to Jewish people in order to keep them happy. They release a prisoner of the choice to the Jews. That's what verse 15 says. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, sounds a bit strange to us, doesn't it? Releasing a prisoner? I mean, we don't release prisoners unless they're found innocent in a court of trial. That's the only time we ever... We don't release guilty criminals... Our justice system does, okay? But we don't do so intentionally, okay? It's not like an act of the king that does that. But you know what? This type of thing takes place in Israel today. Israel today is just like Israel back then. Today, Israel, the Israelis, govern Palestine. And they have many subjects in Palestine who are rebellious against them. The Palestinians who live in the West Bank. They're given some measure of control. They're given some measure of sovereignty. But ultimately, it's the Israelis who rule over them, right? You see the comparison? In the days of Jesus, it was the Jews who were a subjected people. And it was the Romans who ruled over them. They gave them some freedom, but they exerted the authority. Now, even in Jerusalem, in Israel today, you will hear every now and then, there'll be some times when Israel releases some prisoners. Have you ever heard about that happening? It happens often. Why? To try to keep the peace. You know, the violence is there and they have, Israel has in their prisons many Palestinians who hate Israel, who want to bring it down and so have committed many crimes against Israel and then they're in prison. And then guys stand up and like, oh, what's the guy's name? He just died. His name's escaping me. What's his name? Arafat. Was like, oh, you're fair, unfair. These guys are corrupt. They release them for us. Release them for us. You know, and they kind of get this whole world opinion against them, and you know, trying to do whatever they can do. And it's just, okay, we're interested in peace. Here, we'll release a hundred prisoners to you. And that happens often. And that happened back then, much like Israel today. Rome 
in an effort to keep peace, would allow a prisoner to be released. Such things in the days of Jesus happened on a yearly basis. One prisoner could be released. And Pilate considered Jesus, I think, to be a great candidate. And I'm sure that as Pilate thought about presenting Jesus to the crowd, it's, it's Jesus. Everyone knows He's righteous. Everyone knows He didn't do anything wrong. And the people love Him. Right? The sinners and tax gatherers came to Him. He healed everybody. The crowds flocked to Him. They heard Him preach. They said, no man preached like this before. The crowds loved Jesus. So Pilate thought that he had the crowd on his side. They put him up against Barabbas. <clears throat> now, we don't know anything about Barabbas, but this. He's a notorious prisoner. We can deduce from this several things. We know that he's known for his crimes. He's been probably in and out of jail so many times. He's first name basis with the Roman prison guards. He is the scum of society. He's a no good, dirty, rotten scoundrel. And everyone, by the way, knew it. Pilate knew it. Religious leaders knew it. Crowds knew it. I think equivalent might be like Al Capone. who this guy was. Charles Manson. Jeffrey Dahmer. So familiar were the people with him and their crimes. I don't even need to mention their crimes. I say these names and, and you think about what they did. So Pilate gathers everyone together, puts his choice between the people. Verse 17. <clears throat> Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? I believe he was fully expecting people to say, Release Jesus! Barabbas de- deserves to die! Give us Jesus! Not Barabbas! He deserves to die! That's the verse, point of verse 18, I think, right? Pilate knew that because of envy, these religious leaders had delivered him up. Surely the, the people would notice the innocence of Jesus. Even Pilate's wife noticed how innocent Jesus was. Sending a note to him, maybe. Maybe telling him, Hey, Pilate, I had this nightmare last night. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. And I think that Pilate was putting forth Barabbas and Jesus because he thought this would be a great way to have nothing to do with the religious man. He'd satisfy these people, came accusing Jesus. He said, put them for And Jesus, here, the people wanted him. I released him. All the tensions would be resolved once Jesus would be set free. But alas, it didn't quite work that way. Persuaded by the chief priests and the elders, the multitude, verse 20, look there. They asked for Barabbas instead of Jesus to be put to death. And I believe at this moment, Pilate couldn't believe it. I believe he was stunned because verse 21 asked the question again. And I think it was asked with a hint of incredulity saying, which of these two do you want me to release for you? Is, is, you know, maybe he's going like this. Is my, is my hearing going out? <laughs> I, I thought for a moment, I heard you say Barabbas. Right? Maybe that was a, a slip of the tongue, right? Like I slopped my dripper. Right? Maybe you did that. Right? Dropped my slipper, that's a slip of the tongue. Maybe you said Barabbas instead of Jesus. Uh, surely you meant Jesus, Right? Which of these do you want me to release? And again, they confirmed. They said, Barabbas. And now Pilate's in a quandary now. The crowd wants Barabbas and not Jesus. He's got to deal with Jesus. But he knows he's a righteous man. Wants to deal with him fairly and rightly. And he says, what evil has he done? Put that to the crowd in verse 23. And they continued shouting all the more. Verse 23 says, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. 
even when Pilate tries to reason with him, all they can say is, let him be crucified. You know, I want to try that a bit, okay? Let, let's, just, let's just try this. Audience participation here. You say, let him be crucified. Go ahead. Okay, let me be Pilate now, okay? What shall I do with Jesus? Uh, what wrong has He done? I found no guilt in Him demanding death. I'll, I'll, I'll punish Him and release Him. How's that? He's your King. Don't you want your King? Shall I crucify your King? That's all he said. It's like they're not hearing his, his answers. In fact, all of these things I said are recorded in different Gospels. That's what he said. He said, I'll punish him and I'll release him. He's your king. I found no guilt determining death. And all he said is, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. It was the chant. Pilate was getting nowhere. No, you know what? Pilate was going backwards in this whole thing. Everything he was doing was met by opposition. And so Pilate saw... Verse 24, he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting. And the last thing Pilate needed was a riot. To get back to Rome, he wasn't doing a very good job. The Jewish people are revolting against you. And so to pacify the situation, he gave into his demands, gives Jesus over to be crucified. That's what verse 26 says. But before doing so, he's got one last opportunity to declare how innocent Jesus was. He took a pitcher of water. I got a cup of water. He took it. And he said, okay, look, Scott, you want him to be crucified? I'm washing my hands of this matter and I am free and I am innocent of this man's blood. That's what he was saying. He said, I found him innocent. This is a mob situation going on. You really want him put to death? I tell you what, I'm innocent of this whole matter. And they understood clearly what he was saying. They said, verse 24, I'm sorry, verse, what is it? Verse 25, His blood be upon us. They understood very clearly that Pilate was saying, here, you can have it your way. You can go to Burger King. But realize, listen, that you're killing him and not me. I'm innocent in these regards. They accepted full responsibility for the death of Jesus in doing so. They understood clearly what was going on. Jesus clearly is the rejected one. I want to point out for you the contrast between these two men. Jesus was the pure and righteous one and Barabbas was the wicked, evil one. Jesus had done nothing wrong and deserved to be set free and Barabbas had done much wrong and deserved to die for his crimes. Here's our lesson, right? Jesus is the rejected one. We need to believe on Him rather than rejecting Him. You know what? You make the same choice every single day. You choose every day when you have a choice between righteousness and sin. You choose, really, between Jesus and Barabbas. These crowds were unbelieving. These crowds were haters of Jesus, and so they chose Barabbas instead. And when you choose sin, you're showing that you aren't loving Jesus. You're hating Jesus at that moment, but you're loving Barabbas. We sang a song in our service this morning, made allusion to this crowd. I hear my mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. And when your mocking voice cries out every time you sin, let him be crucified. So when you're tempted to sin this next week, 
and you're thinking about committing it, just think in your mind, let Him be crucified, let Him be crucified, let me do that evil sin. The good news of the Gospel is this, is that many of those who shouted, let Him be crucified, repented 50 days later, the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching to a crowd of people. And he said, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter could have stood that day and looked in the crowd. You were there, and 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 you were were shouting out, let him be crucified. That's the one that God has exalted as Lord and Christ. And those very people, do you know what they did? They're convicted and pierced in their heart. And they said, oh, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And many that day found forgiveness. Many of the same ones. Three thousand of them, in fact, were added to the church. The same is true for you. Though you sin and choose Barabbas, there's still hope in the crucified, resurrected Messiah. That's why I put it a lesson here. Though Jesus is the rejected one, we need to believe in Him. And now we come, we're going to finish this with one last verse, verse 26, which stirred my heart more than any other verses in this passage, my study this week. Jesus is the substituted one. Look at verse 26. Then Pilate released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. You need to see here that the one who deserved to die was set free. And the one who deserved to go free was delivered over to be killed. You know, Scripture says that Jesus wasn't the only one crucified on that day. Do you remember, children? How many people were crucified on that day? How many, Preston? Three were crucified on that day. Right? Remember, how many crosses did the Romans prepare that day? Three crosses. And as they prepared those crosses, who were those crosses for? Who? Melissa? You know what? Not quite. They're for two thieves and for Barabbas. There were three crosses prepared that day for two thieves and for Barabbas. Now, I want you to think about a moment. Maybe you've seen church slogans or church logos or outside church buildings. Sometimes there are three crosses. You ever see those? What always pops in your mind? Thieves and Jesus, right? I want you, though, to begin thinking. Think thieves and Barabbas. Think that in your mind because that's what should have taken place. It would do good for you to think of the original intention for those crosses. Two thieves and Barabbas. Somehow, in some way, through some miraculous turn of events, Barabbas never made it to his cross. Jesus became his substitute, dying in his place on his chunk of wood. And I say, church family, that that is a great picture of what Christ has done for those of us who believe. He has taken our place. Every single one of us, without exception, deserve What we deserve is to be nailed upon a cross to die for our own sins. But Jesus willingly took up our cross for us. He became our substitute. Charles Spurgeon, when he tried to sum up the atonement, came up with one word. 
summarize the gospel greatly. He says this word, substitution. That is the atonement. That is the gospel of Christ. There's no better word to explain it. Jesus dying in your place for your substitute. You know, we often quote this verse because it narrows it down so great. Right? God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. That's the gospel of Christ. That's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. Because Christ who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we who knew sin might become the righteousness of Christ. And God looks down upon us as if we're Jesus. He looked down upon Jesus as if He were us. That's why we gather, because we believe Jesus took our place on the cross. And this message is saturated throughout the Bible. I just wrote down ten verses that say the same thing. You can write them down. I could come up with thirty or forty. John ten eleven. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In our place. The good shepherd for us. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. He died instead of us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. Him dying for our sins instead of us. Galatians 2.20 It was the Son of God who loved me, is what Paul says, and delivered Himself up for me. He Himself delivered Himself up in replace for me. Ephesians 5.2 Christ gave Himself up for us. Titus 2.14 Christ gave Himself for us. Hebrews 10.12 Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. It was His sacrifice that was for sins. It was in place of sins was His sacrifice. 1 Peter 2.21, Christ suffered for you. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins. He died for sins. Once for all, the just for the unjust. To bring us to God. To make the unjust just. John 3.16, He laid down His life for us. I want you to think about the experience of the freedom that Barabbas experienced. One moment, he's on death row awaiting his cruel death that morning. The next moment, he's set free! Barabbas can go home and see his mother. Barabbas can get on his donkey, can ride into town where he can order a falafel at his favorite restaurant. Barabbas can go around carousing with his friends once again until he gets placed in jail again. And I would say this, the freedom that redeemed souls face is no less real than the freedom that Barabbas faced. If you've trusted in Christ, you are free from your sin. Jesus took all of your punishment. You no longer have the sentence of death against you. You are free. So I ask you, how are you going to use that freedom? The lesson really is quite clear. Jesus is our substituted one. We need to trust in Him. He's the one that swapped, that took our place. We need to trust in Him. Walking moment by moment in love to Him, in adoration to Him, in obedience to Him because of all He's done for us. Well, there is Jesus in the Roman trial He is the sovereign one. Submit to Him. He is the silent one. Wait for Him. He is the rejected one. Believe in Him. He's the substituted one. Trust in Him. 
You know, it's interesting how that is the character of Christ and how much it always causes us to respond in an appropriate way. And my heart desire, my prayer for you this morning is that we would respond to Christ in those ways. So let's pray and commit our hearts to those things. Oh, oh Lord, what can we do but render back our praise and thanks, adoration, love, affection, desire to You. I pray that we would see that third cross as the cross meant for Barabbas that Jesus took. What a great picture that is of the glorious Gospel of Christ. And I pray that this would become our boast and our joy and our confidence. As Paul said, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Paul preached. He preached Christ and Him crucified. It's our message. It is Him dying for us. Is it unfair? Certainly it's unfair. We deserve death and yet You've given us freedom and life. I pray that we would be so stirred to go from this place talking to others who don't know that freedom, who are bound in their sin, who need to be released. They don't even feel they're bound. God, I pray that You would open eyes this week to Your glorious Gospel. I pray that we as well would be reminded the wonders of Your grace, that we'd walk in holiness and purity, submitting to You, waiting for You, believing in You, and trusting in You for all things. We do pray in the wonderful name of our Lord, who has saved us from our sin. In whose name we pray. Amen.